0: Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. From NPR and WBUR
1: Boston, I'm Meghna Chakrabarti, and this is On Point. This week, you could feel a shift happening, not as stark or as sudden as the one that occurred in March when daily life was upended by the coronavirus pandemic. But it was noticeable nonetheless. States eased stay-at-home orders and began implementing plans to reopen more businesses. But at a Senate hearing on Tuesday, Dr. Anthony Fauci warned that what states do not have in place is a robust response plan on what to do when COVID cases surge.
2: There is a real risk that you will trigger an outbreak that you may not be able to control, which in fact, paradoxically, will set you back, not only leading to some suffering and death that could be avoided, but could even set you back on the road to trying to get economic recovery.
1: Dr. Rick Bright amplified that warning. He's the former director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA. He filed a whistleblower complaint against the Trump administration last month after being ousted as head of that federal vaccine agency. Bright testified before a House subcommittee yesterday.
3: If we fail to improve our response now based on science, I fear the pandemic will get worse and be prolonged. There will be likely a resurgence of COVID 19 this fall. It'll be greatly compounded by the challenges of seasonal influenza. Without better planning, 2020 could be the darkest winter in modern history.
1: And that's just the beginning of our Friday Week in Review. We've got a terrific panel to walk us through the week's news today. And joining us is Julie Pace. She's the Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press and host of Ground Game, the AP's political podcast. Julie, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Stephen Henderson also joins us today. He's in Detroit. He's host of WDET's Detroit Today and a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist as well. Stephen, welcome back to On Point. Hey, Magna, how are you? I'm um, doing well, as well as as, <laughs> as anyone, I presume. <laughs> yeah, right. And Julie Rovner is also yeah. She's, Julie Rovner is also with us. She's chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of Kaiser's What the Health podcast. What the health, I should say, just to be sure everyone knows. Uh, And She joins us from Kensington, Maryland. Julie, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being with us. It is nice to be back. Okay, so let's start off with that one-two punch of doctors Bright and Fauci this week in two different sets of hearings uh, before Congress. And Julie Rovner, I'm going to start with you. I mean, if you had to sum up, first of all, what Dr. Anthony Fauci said, how would you you sum up up the impact of his uh, testimony?
3: Well, this was, of course, the first time we got to hear him speak at length without having the president, you know, two feet behind him ready to come up and interrupt. And he basically said... What he's been saying for a while, which is that we really need to solve the public health problem before we can solve the economic problem. And he worries that we're rushing to sort of solve the economic problem and the public health part might come back to bite us. If everybody gets sick or if everybody's scared to go out because we don't have you know, a really good national plan, that's not really going to fix the economy.
1: Mm. And we'll talk about um, national plans or the lack thereof, in a second. But Julie Pace, do we know, do we have a sense as to how uh, the senators whom Fauci was speaking to, how they responded to his, his his quite somber warning?
4: Well, certainly a lot of the Democratic senators and uh, some of the Republican senators um, were quite taken with his comments. I mean, it was it was quite an impactful hearing. You know, Fauci is someone who, though he has been thrown kind of into the political uh, mix during this process, remains widely respected by uh, people in both parties, r- remains widely respected by a vast majority of the American public. And, and to hear him talk about uh, the roadblocks ahead, to hear him talk, you know, in very somber terms about how long we really have to go, I do think made an impact. And I think it was also the, the the setting that this happened in you know this was a hearing that happened almost entirely remotely because Fauci and other witnesses as well as some of the lawmakers were testifying and asking questions from their homes because of the public health concerns so you could you could just feel the gravity i think of of the situation during that hearing
1: I would fully agree that for for Americans who were watching, even if even for politicians with the greatest sense of bravado, there was inescapable visual evidence that everything has changed. I mean, we're having hearings that are done uh, remotely, just like how you know tens of millions of Americans have been um, forced to to change their daily life and work habits. Now, Stephen, what I really want to hear from you is um, you know, we played that bit of tape from Dr. Fauci a little earlier, and he, and he was warning, he said states are beginning to relax their restrictions, but they do not have in place robust plans on what to do when those COVID cases start surging again. I mean, how does that, mm-hmm. how does that land in Detroit? Uh, it's very frightening, I think, uh, is
2: the, the right way to describe it. Um, uh, we have, like many other states, started to relax some of the restrictions here in Michigan. People are starting to get back out uh, and mix around with other people people a little bit in parks and places like that, um, you know, we don't have a plan if we see another big spike in cases. We, we continue to see lots of cases still, of course, here in Detroit and and deaths uh, continue to, to j- just sort of mount each each day i think you've got a lot of people who are holding back from engaging in this this relaxed restrictions a lot of people still just staying at home but for those who are out and about you know the question is it's kind of like a time bomb right and it's ticking in the background Mm. and you're waiting to hear about whether we go back to the days of you know, uh, hundreds of deaths in in a day, which was where we were just a few weeks ago.
1: Right. So, Julie Ravner, um, uh, as all three of you know, it has been discussed ad nauseum that really a robust plan that allows for the reopening of states and and their economies and um, the staying open requires immense testing, immense contact tracing, a ramping up of Uh, Of capacity in the healthcare systems within each of those states. I'm not sure any state has actually achieved that. So short of that, are we looking at a future where when those surges come again in fall and perhaps in the winter, that will we just go back to a sort of an emergency flatten or flatten the curve scenario like we're in now?
3: Well, we've certainly seen in some other countries that were ahead of us, you know, they got, they got the virus earlier and have opened up, they're now having to sort of reimpose shutdowns or complete lockdowns. We've seen that in a number of different countries. So there is this concern that when people start getting out and about, they start to expose each other because we don't have a vaccine yet. And we do have asymptomatic transmission. So I still, I question the idea of, you know, we're going to take everybody's temperature. There are people who have no fever who can spread this, which is, I think, one of the biggest problems. Um, But we also need a a national, uh, we don't even really have state plans. Right now we have a number of states that are partly reopening. They're reopening in parts of the states. The state I live in, Maryland, is doing exactly that parts of the state that have fewer cases are reopening more than I live right adjacent to Washington, D.C. We're remaining in shutdown. But that's not to say that people in my county can't go to the next county over now and possibly spread it there. So it's really hard to, to keep this bottled up and we don't know who has it.
1: All right. And so that it just makes what uh, Dr. Rick Bright told uh, the House subcommittee just yesterday, that dark winter that he foresees for for the United States, that much more um, concerning. Julie Pace, first of all, remind us, um, uh, if you could, for a second, who Dr. Bright is and why he was even testifying before a House subcommittee.
4: Sure, Rick Bright is becoming uh, something of a household name now in this uh, pandemic. He is a whistleblower. He uh, was a top official at BARDA, uh, which is part of uh, HHS, and he filed a whistleblower complaint, basically saying that he had been uh, demoted, ousted, essentially from his from his position because of a variety of concerns that he had been raising about uh, preparedness for the for the pandemic. Uh, Trump administration officials say that's not true, um, that that was not the reason uh, that he was ousted. But Bright has a pretty compelling story to tell, um, and he has done so quite effectively um, through various uh, formats, both in his complaint, in in interviews, and then most recently in this hearing. And, you know, his, his concerns are— I think the concerns that a lot of people have, which is about wasted time uh, in, the, in the opening stages of this pandemic in the United States and about a lack of real understanding about what's to come. You know, there is so much talk, as, as Julie was saying, there is so much talk right now about reopening and so many steps that are happening toward reopening. And and what Bright was warning is essentially, you know, we, are, we have so far to go in order to get to a place where we can get back to any sense of normal. And I think one of the real concerns, you know, that I have heard um, from politicians, frankly, in in both parties right now is that, you know, there's not uh, it, it's hard for, I think, Americans to understand just how uneven these reopenings will be in terms of stops and starts. You know, we could if we get back to a position in the winter where we are dealing with a second wave, we're also dealing with the flu. We're also dealing with, you know, a, a still a lack of testing uh, at the at the level that we need. A vaccine still isn't there. You know, our lives are still going to be quite up upended and, and bright. In addition to everything he was talking about, you know, with his with his history, with this administration was really, uh, I think pretty powerful in his warnings about what could be to come in the in the coming months yeah
1: yeah. Uh, Stephen, we've just got about just a little over a minute to go before we have to hit that first break. And the detail mm-hmm. in Bright's testimony was really bracing to me. I mean, he was talking, speaking of like unrealistic expectations, he was even talking about things like we may not have enough glass vials ready to um, for for what we would need for vaccine production as and when we do have a, a COVID or a coronavirus vaccine. Just got about mm-hmm. 30 seconds here. Your, your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, we're, we're not ready. And other countries are... And it's very frustrating because we could be focusing our efforts on getting ready. Instead, in states like Michigan here, we're fighting over whether we should get back to life as quote unquote normal and how fast that should happen. It's, It's one of the more frustrating dynamics right now.
1: Well, we mentioned a little earlier that there's no national plan yet. When we come back, we'll talk about whatever happened to that CDC preparedness document. We'll also take a look at the Supreme Court hearing oral argument over teleconferencing. And there is a lot more to discuss. So Julie Pace, Julie Robner and Stephen Henderson, stand by. We'll be right back. It's the Week in Review on On Point.
0: Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash That's Indeed.com slash terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy
3: solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves.
0: Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm Megna Chakrabardi. It's
1: our Friday Week in the News roundtable, and I'm joined by Stephen Henderson from WDET, Julie Rovner from Kaiser Health News, and Julie Pace with the Associated Press. And if you've got a question uh, about the news of the week, about what doctors Anthony Fauci or Bright said to Congress about the president's response, or whatever happened to that CDC uh, preparedness plan for the coronavirus or from winding down from quarantine, Send us a tweet. We're at On Point Radio or hop on Facebook and find us at On Point Radio as well with your questions or comments about the week's news. Maybe you want to know how it is that the Supreme Court heard oral arguments over teleconferencing. So at the top of the hour, we heard a clip from Dr. Anthony Fauci's warning to senators, as I just mentioned, about the dangers of relaxing physical distancing restrictions too soon. Now, just as a reminder, Fauci is, of course, a key member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force and the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And he spoke at a Tuesday hearing. Now, here's what President Trump said the very next day.
2: Look, he wants to play all sides of the equation. Uh, I think we're going to have a tremendous fourth quarter. I think we're going to have a transitional third quarter. And I think we're going to have a phenomenal next
1: year. That's the president on Wednesday. Julie Pace, tell us a little bit more uh, about the president's reaction to the dire warnings that were surrounding him uh, on Capitol Hill today, this week.
4: Well, they're the opposite of what the president wants to be hearing and what he wants to be promoting to the American public right now, which is where this real d- disconnect lies here. You know, he is very focused on trying to encourage people to feel safe, to feel like they can open their businesses, to feel like people can go to those businesses. And so, you know, he is trying, particularly with Fauci, you know, he is trying to be respectful because he is well aware that Fauci is broadly popular again not just with democrats but also with republicans and that he is seen as a credible voice so he knows that he has to be uh, careful that he can't go too far certainly as far as he goes you know with some other people who say things that he doesn't necessarily agree with um, but he definitely wants to send a different message and i think that's why you're starting to see at a lot of white house events you know Fauci is not there right now he is he, this is not a situation where the president is standing shoulder to shoulder with a lot of these public health officials he is standing shoulder to shoulder uh, with economic advisors with business leaders really trying to signal not just with his words but with his actions and the settings that he's in that this is an administration that is that is more focused as each day passes on the economic situation and and moving toward a reopening
1: Julie Rovner it 's hard not to feel a certain frustration when you we hear the President look at the nation 's head of allergy infection and infectious diseases and say he 's trying to play all sides of the equation i mean it, to me it's it 's example after example of how the lack of synergy decision making synergy between uh, scientific and medical expertise and political leadership in this country is 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 the albatross around our necks. And I just want to put like the politics aside for a second. But how damaging is that? It seems like that the, we have the president playing against the advice of or the testimony of his own top medical experts.
3: You know, I said back, I think the first week of March, when this was all getting started, that we are entering a time as a country where we need to be able to trust government and we need to be able to trust science. And this administration has basically spent three and a half years convincing its supporters not to trust either. And I think that turned out to be pretty prophetic. That's kind of where we are. I literally just read a tweet about Republican House members, the House is voting on that bill right now, um, standing around together without masks and touching each other and not practicing social distancing. I mean, it's really become a, you know, no one trusts science and Republicans believe that everything is political.
1: Yeah. So, Stephen, I also wonder, I mean, how is the average American supposed to navigate that? Right. Because (laughs) we're all having to make decisions every day about our own health and safety, the health and safety of our families, of of our communities. People are losing loved ones. And and we're looking for leadership uh, anywhere we can find it. It just seems like it's so much harder for us collectively to do the right thing.
2: No, it really is. And, you know, at the state level, we have that same kind of tension playing out where our governor here in Michigan is taking the advice of medical experts and public health experts to try to shape policy and decide how much should we be reengaging at this point with the economy, with each other. And you have Republicans who control the legislature who have not taken any of the advice that the public health experts have been saying, but have a group of economists who are informing their approach to all of this. And they keep saying, well, we're ready to go back to this instead of what we've been doing. I think the confusion that a lot of people are feeling is, you know, it owes to that Mixed messaging. You have one side that is saying that public health is the most important thing that we can use to inform what we do. And the other side saying, well, really, it's, it's economics and it's economists and people who are thinking about money who should be guiding the policy at this point. And if you're just a person trying to figure out what to do, you're being buffeted by both of those things, right? This is a public health crisis, but it's also an economic crisis. So what are you supposed to do?
1: Well, exactly, because the two are inextricably intertwined, right? I mean, Julie, Julie Robner, this is this is the thing I keep I am yearning for more than anything is leadership across sectors in the United States that says we're not going to do either or anymore. That, in fact, health and and the economy are so strongly overlapped that there has to be a more sophisticated way forward. Are we seeing that coming from
3: anywhere? We're really not, you know. Those of us who sort of cover health and science would be looking to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And we're just we've not had a briefing from the CDC since March. Um, we've had the CDC guidelines with which Julie Pace can talk about more because the AP got a hold of the early copy. And then what was eventually put out was uh, not nearly as detailed. I mean, we're not really getting the science leadership that we would normally get. And then you overlay the economic part over top of that. But there's, you know, the the Trump administration has made it very much a goal to turn this all back to states and even cities and even towns. And there's a lot of people who don't have enough public health expertise to know how to safely reopen the economy, even if they think they're ready.
1: Right, and then on top of that, it doesn't help at all. It's all landed in the middle of a presidential election year. But Julie Pace, uh, Julie Rovner is exactly right to point to the AP's uh, exclusive from earlier this week, where uh, the AP uh, obtained that CDC guidance that the White House had shelved. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Sure. I, you know, I think the backdrop of this all is that you know the CDC is really the preeminent public health institution in the world. I mean, you have experts who have worked there for years preparing for moments just like this, and then the pandemic hits, and many of them are effectively sidelined. They are churning out guidelines and reports and 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 suggestions for this White House task force on how to handle this moment, because, again, they have been studying, you know, what to do in these types of situations, you know, for their entire careers. And there's a real frustration, you know, at the CDC about that fact. And it really manifested itself, I think, most clearly in this set of guidelines, which was uh, supposed to go out broadly, was supposed to give, you know, as, as we talk about this, you know, health versus economy debate, you know, it was supposed to actually address that How do you begin to reopen a variety of sectors in the economy at the same time that you are carefully monitoring the health situation and we are told and we have emails to back this up that you know it was approved through the highest levels of the CDC and when it got to the White House it was shelved by the highest levels at the White House and you know there's a there's a lack of clarity about exactly why that happened except for the assumption on the on the part of CDC officials that these restrictions were seen as too tough, and and, and White House mm-hmm. officials did not want to put stringent guidelines out there. They wanted to be able to push forward on economic openings. They didn't want to have to have as much of a phased in in process. We do see now that there's a, a version of these guidelines that has put out been put out that is um, less stringent than what the CDC originally recommended. But again, I think at the root of this is the fact that the the preeminent public health you know institution in this country you know has not had as robust a voice at the table as you might expect
1: I want to dig in this, into this a little bit more with you, Julia, if I could, because I'm looking mm-hmm. at the AP story from earlier this week where um, the the document was um, first revealed. First of all, it's 63 pages long. I mean, it's it, it's quite comprehensive, and it's got organizational tools in it created by the CDC to help coordinate a national response. Right, that's key because we were talking about the lack of a national response um, a little earlier in the show. And it goes and gives step by step instructions for local civic leaders to help um, Americans re-enter civic life, um, and that there's the MAPRAP document tools for customization uh, for plans, depending, I guess, on, on your particular community. So it sounds like exactly what we were hoping for. But according to the AP story, the White House said that the document was a draft and not ready for release.
4: Exactly. And you're you're exactly right. You know, we've had so many people saying, where is the national plan? How how are we going to coordinate this? Here is the national plan, a quite a quite detailed plan we are told, and again, the emails that we obtained in our reporting process do back this up, that the CDC director did sign off on this document, did approve this document. At some point in the process, uh, that story changed. And the White House officials have said, in fact, he did not sign off on it. This was only a draft. We wanted it uh, sent back for further review. Uh, we wanted to uh, to have changes made to it. And again, this really frustrated officials at the CDC who went through the exact process that they were told to do that they, they were told to uh, come up with this document a national plan to to make it quite comprehensive to also make it you know to this point that has come up here about states needing some flexibility because we are such a large country with urban, rural, suburban areas, you know, to have some flexibility to be able to modify it to to the needs of your exact community. They did exactly that. They got sign off from their director and then when it flowed through the political process, they were told you know, not good enough. Mm. Go back to the drawing board or or really water this water this down.
1: Yeah, and um, one more question, uh julie pace about this i don't know if you've had time to look at what the white house uh did release or what the cdc did did release um i'll i'll admit i haven't had time to dig through it but i mean how different is it from the original document that the ap obtained
4: yeah it's different and and we've seen this we've seen this in a couple of other instances as well that there is uh the white house is focused on on more flexibility for the states. They are focused on uh, fewer restrictions and essentially being able to say, you know, broad stroke guidelines, make the decisions as you w- as you will. And what the CDC gu- guidelines were trying to do, the original CDC guidelines, what they were trying to do is uh, provide much more stringent metrics. You know, if you if you meet this criteria, you do this. If you meet this next criteria, you do this. And the White House has consistently kind of tried to back away from situations like that.
1: Mm. Mm.
3: I'm mm-hmm. Magna Magna Chakrabarty. Chakrabarty.
1: This is on this. Hang on for one second, Julie. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is on point. Uh, just the housekeeping I had to do there, Julie Rovner, but go ahead. That's fine. <laughs>
3: um, you know, I think what's important to remember about sort of what the what the original CDC document said and what these sort of new fact sheets that they put out say is that the CDC was trying to do what are you know what are called best practices, so a lot of the things said you know you should do this and you should do that um, because those that 's what the best practice would be for these situations and there were you know very detailed lists for schools and childcare centers and retail outlets and restaurants um, and basically what the White House had sort of turned it into is a um, here are some good ways that you might do this. So it, it wasn't even so much that they were prescriptive. They were only prescriptive in the sense of if you really want to do this right, here's how you would do it. And now it's much more of a here's some things that you could do. So, uh, Stephen, I'm going to come to you in a second. But, but Julie Rovner,
1: no. I'm taking a deep deep breath here because I don't know how else to ask this other than why why would the White House do this? I, I, I just I, as a citizen, I just do not understand because it seems to me that the, these are the kinds of guidelines or guidance that we would need in order to quickly re,
3: or, or reopen the economy as quickly as possible, which is indeed the White House's central focus. But the guidelines, the original guidelines, the, the best practice guidelines, a longer document, made it look like things are really scary and really still dangerous. And things are still really scary and really still dangerous. But the White House doesn't want to send that message.
1: Yeah. Stephen, you've been really patient here. Jump in. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. You know, I
2: mean, I, again, there is there is a way to accommodate all of these things. And it's important, I think, to keep in mind that for the average person... This is a crisis on two fronts. You know, you do have th- this incredible public health issue which is taking people's lives and and forcing us to to change the way that we live among each other, but you also have this incredibly damaging uh, economic crisis that's unfolding. And and the confusion, I think, uh, comes from this this tension that has been created between those two things that in most people's lives uh, contradicts the way that they have to, to think about it and the way that they that they have to live. People have to be able to manage both of these things in a way that doesn't risk either to the point of, uh, you know, extreme long term damage. And it's really hard to watch the government not be able to, to navigate that in a, in a sensible way and give people advice, consistent advice, about how to get back to some sort of equilibrium between those two, those two poles. Uh, we haven't done it at the federal level, and we sure have not accomplished it uh, at the state level in, in many cases. And, and what I fear is that we are headed for really bad news in lots of states about new cases mounting and deaths going back up because we've done this in such a haphazard and sloppy way.
1: Yeah. Well, and I mean, at the state level, since you mentioned it, we've got some basically an ad hoc system of state reopenings. The Wisconsin Supreme Court overturning the, uh, the state's stay at home order there. And look, mm-hmm. we've got about a minute here left before we have to head into our next break. Stephen, can we just put some concrete reality on this? Just describe to me what impact all of this has had, the, the disease and the economic fallout in Detroit.
2: Well, the public health side in Detroit is the saddest story. We have uh, an enormous number of people who are sick, and we have dealt with more death than than any other place in the state and and, and more than many other cities as well. I don't know that there's anybody in Detroit who hasn't been touched very personally by, by the public health side of this. I have seven people uh, that I knew before this who are now no longer with us. Uh, because of COVID-19. Uh, the economic side is, is just as bad, uh, but I, I think it's overshadowed in most people's minds because we can fix the economy at some point. You can't bring people back from the dead.
1: Yeah. Well, Stephen Henderson, Julie Rovner, and Julie Pace, stand by for a moment. We've got much more to talk about in the week in review, so we'll do that when we come back. This is On Point. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. It is Friday, so therefore, yes, it is time to take a look at the week in review. And joining us to help us do that is Julie Rovner. She's with us from Kensington, Maryland. She's chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of Kaiser's What the Health podcast. Julia Pace also joins us. She's with us from Washington. She's Washington bureau chief for the Associated Press and host of Ground Game, the AP's political podcast. And Stephen Henderson is with us from Detroit, Michigan. He's host of Detroit Today. On WDET and a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist as well And we've got now in the studio On Point producer Dori Scheimer Who's been uh, keeping track of social media comments And questions about the week's news So Dori, what have you got?
5: Yeah, from Yolanda Perez on Twitter. She's asking, you know, we're seeing other countries go back to school. But here in the U.S., she asks, how come those other countries haven't reported children having inflammatory disease and COVID-19 like symptoms like we're seeing here in the U.S.?
1: Good question. Julie Rovner, do you want to take that?
3: That is a good question. You know, it, it's worth reminding people there's so much we still don't know medically about this disease, about the virus that causes it, about what happens after you get better. We still don't know how long, if if we assume people are immune once they've recovered, but we don't know for how long. Um, we don't know what level of antibodies they need. And obviously, you know, they're only just linking this uh child disease back to COVID-19 so it's possible that it's shown up in other countries but it just hasn't been noted as being related to this
1: so is it is it basically the best practice right now is anytime there's a new correlation made that scientists and and medical experts need to go back and look at previous cases Julie to see if if they retroactively
3: um experience the same thing Yes, I'm sure they will be doing that. The American Academy of Pediatrics, you know, here in the U.S. has put out an alert to doctors to, to be on the lookout for this, particularly for pediatricians, obviously, who are going to be seeing these cases. Um, but we don't necessarily know, you know, what's uh, happening in other countries. We, but the important point is we don't know that this hasn't happened in other countries. It, it, it still seems extremely rare, even among the people who get this disease, even among the children who get this disease, and which are not very many. So it's possible that it just hasn't been noted yet in other countries.
1: Okay. Doris Shimer, do we have any more questions or comments you want to bring to the table?
5: Yeah, we do. One, um, kind of a, a crossover between what's happening at the state level and also uh, you know, the federal Supreme Court, this idea of the courts uh, in Wisconsin, uh, the state Supreme Court there who are elected, making decisions that are contrary to uh, polling, on what the majority of people in Wisconsin want. So uh, Nathaniel Raggetz asked us on on Facebook, you know, are we really undoing uh, freedom or undermining it when the courts decide to um, turn down the governor's safer at home order, like he did in Wisconsin?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question because, of course, the governor also elected by the, the, that very same body of voters. Stephen, what do you think about that? Uh,
2: you know, the the Wisconsin uh, decision is, is I think, going to end up being one of the more tragic episodes of, of all of this. And I think there is a really interesting question about uh, voters will and what the people want versus uh, what the law, what the law says. We also elect Supreme Court justices here in the state of Michigan. And I think uh, most people would agree that it's a, a pretty lousy way to select jurists. It subjects them to, to popular will, uh, which is in conflict often with what the, the Constitution and the laws say. Uh, I, I feel I, watching the, the the pictures of people in Wisconsin flooding back to bars and restaurants within like hours of this decision coming down just made the hair stand up on the back of my neck in terms of what they're going to be in for. In just a few weeks, uh, when we we learn whether the virus there is spreading as badly as it has other places, they had a chance to to prevent that with these stay at home orders, and the court decided that the governor uh, that the governor and the governor's appointees did not have the authority to do it. It's really remarkable
1: mm. Well, let's pivot uh, for a moment just to to the High Court. Itself in Washington because they heard oral arguments on a number of cases this week uh, over teleconferencing, so working remotely as are millions of Americans. And uh, Julie Pace, your, your your quick thoughts on um, it, it, there there's a bunch of cases. I don't know if you have a favorite case that, that the justices heard this week, and you want to talk about that.
4: Yeah, sure. So This was a big week for the court, um, and a big couple of weeks for the court based on just the technological aspects of this. You know, the court is uh, this, this institution that has been extremely resistant to, uh, technology, to any kind of sort of live streaming of their arguments. And because they were all forced to be hearing cases from home, they did decide for the first time to allow live streaming audio, which was really just fascinating. I think for a lot of Americans to listen to the voices of these, of these figures who, uh, whose names we know, but frankly are not you know, really public in the way that certainly our, our politicians are, but they did hear some, some big impactful cases, uh, I think one of the biggest ones that I was watching this week is the one that focused on uh, Trump's efforts to with continue to withhold uh, his taxes and other financial documents uh, you know the president has been adamant that he does not want this information released and this was both a case about those specific documents but also uh, presidential powers uh, in general and and, and presidential immunity uh, you know whether presidents uh, you know can be forced to turn over this kind of information particularly in, in criminal cases and it actually appears as though the court could end up in a in a split decision you know we'll see what Happens when they uh, when they come back uh, with their decision, but I, I I think for anybody who is expecting that the Supreme Court, uh, you know, might clear the way for us to get you know this kind of financial information, uh, tax returns from the president before the election, uh, that seemed unlikely based on our reading of of, of the arguments.
1: Right, no, and in no, fact, no, that I, case, uh, Stephen, just one just one quick second, I'm going to turn right back to to you, but I just wanted to uh, sort of share a quick thought that I had uh, about what Julie said. That case, uh, I mean, that's one that really has ramifications well beyond the presidency of Donald Trump. And we're talking about about how much protection does the office of the presidency of the United States deserve? I mean, one can imagine an entirely different scenario: um, the office of the presidency is getting is receiving a, a lot of pressure on something that's that's purely purely political um and with no really base basis whatsoever but i I, that's actually a really big case that's going to stay with us for quite a while and so steven i'm sorry to have interrupted you there but go ahead
2: yeah no i was going to say i i actually covered the court for five terms uh, between 2002 and 2007 so i was watching really closely uh as this week as as they had these live oral arguments I mean as Julie said this is absolute anathema to to many of the justices this idea of the of the live aspect of this but I think it's absolutely wonderful that it happened uh this gives people access to to the branch of of government that I think is the most mysterious to most people they don't really know a lot about it they don't really know how it works uh you could sit there and listen and just as if you were in the in the courtroom. Uh, the other thing that was really interesting about the arguments that I thought uh, was how active Justice Thomas was in the questioning. Uh, when I was there uh, from 2002 to 2007 and for most of his time on the bench, you know, he has been really reluctant to participate in oral arguments. Uh, You don't hear his voice in the courtroom outside of the cases that he gets to to, to write and then announce from the bench. But we heard him ask a lot of questions during these oral arguments, and it made me wonder what about this format changed his mind about how all this is supposed to do, how, how this is supposed to work, but also what the reaction was among people who watch the courts closely uh, to to hearing Justice Thomas's voice uh, as as much as as other justices on the bench, it was really it was really sort of remarkable.
1: That is fascinating, right? Because there are many, many, many oral arguments in the past where he's just been silent, right? He hasn't even he, asked a single just, question. To... That's right. Uh, yeah, I've asked so three made, look, questions look, while I'm, I was at the court. I'm not going to speculate on what might have motivated him now. And also, I've, I've been told by other legal experts that at, you, you can't really use the questions that a justice asks as indicative of how she or he might be leaning on a particular case, because sometimes they might argue against their actual Legal point of view, but it's still fascinating to hear that he spoke up. Now, was which one of the Julies was that that wanted to get in here?
3: Julie Robner. I actually listened to the birth control case last week, and some of the people suggested when uh, uh, Justice Thomas also asked a number of questions, which in all the times I've been at the court, I have never heard him ask a question. Um, And someone suggested that it may be a different expectation because Justice Roberts was going down and basically calling out everybody's name to see if they had any questions, and so there was almost the expectation that if you were called on, you would ask a question. I have no idea if that's why, but it certainly seems uh, one plausible explanation.
1: Oh, That's so fascinating. Okay, wow. Well, so let's swing back to for a moment to the economy, because I did want to touch on a couple of things there. there. One is that Fed Chair Jerome Powell giving that very gloomy economic forecast unless there's decisive continued uh, government action, and then the House unveiling a $3 trillion relief plan. Uh, Julie Pace, can you talk about that a little bit?
4: Sure. I mean, it's a really eye popping uh, sum of money that we're talking about here. Uh, part of the reason why the House, though, is moving forward with this, why Democrats are moving forward with, with this, and and so quickly, is that they don't expect it to pass. This is largely a messaging bill from the Democrats. This is a way for them to lay down some markers on some key areas and try to open negotiations, really, with Republicans on a on a, a next wave rescue package. You know, where Democrats are trying to pressure Republicans are. Uh, on a couple fronts. One state and local governments. They the bill, the 3 trillion dollar bill has 1 trillion dollars for state and local governments, governments because that's where we're seeing a lot of the pressure points on the economy right now. Uh, there's also money in there for individuals, so more direct, you know, checks to to individuals. Not a lot, interestingly, in this democratic package for industry, for businesses. And I think, you know, two reasons for that. One, I think Democrats want to show that that they are, you know, on the side of, of working people, that they are on the side, again, of these state and local governments. And they really want to put it on Republicans to say, hey, if you want to stand up and help big business, you know, you're going to be the, have to be the ones to put that on, on the table. So again, I mean, the way you want to think about this bill is it's, uh, even though the, the sums of money are historic, you know, you want to think about it as the opening gambit, I think, in a negotiation toward what what Congress may ultimately do in the coming weeks.
1: I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is on point, Stephen Henderson. Your response to that? I mean, I, I, I take Julia's point. You plant your flag as far out as you can and see where you end up.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the one of the constituencies that's really worried and paying a lot of attention to what's going on right now with these bills is state and local governments, which are being absolutely hammered. By the shutdown of the economy, they are projecting huge, huge deficits here in the state of Michigan here in Detroit. Uh, the state government uh, or the city government, which uh, was in bankruptcy just six years ago, uh, is now sort of just back up off of its knees and being pummeled again by the lack of economic activity there's a lot there 's a lot of discussion in in Congress about helping out those governments, how much to help out those governments. Uh, and if we can't come to a deal that includes that, I think you you are talking about economic catastrophes uh, in, in in local governments that we have not seen uh, not seen before. And so the the stakes here for for that kind of thing are are extremely extremely high.
3: Mm. Julie Robner, your thoughts? Yeah, I think this, you know, the federal government doesn't have to balance its budget, but almost every state does. And this is going to lead to enormous cuts that we're already starting to hear about from governors and and mayors um, and and council people about, you know, cuts to safety programs and teachers and firefighters and, you know, things, basic services that we all rely on. If the states really take this big a hit, they're going to have to cut back on a lot of, of Very important services, including public health. So at some Mm -hmm. point, you really are cutting off your nose despite your face.
1: Right. It does seem more than a little ironic to hear Washington say they want states to lead. But if it's leading down the road to catastrophe, not helping out um, or doing what the federal government has the power to do that states can't. Uh, At the same time. Um, Now, listen, we've just got a couple of minutes left. And there's one last thing I wanted to touch on. And Julia has it come Julie uh, Pace, it comes from your reporting that you just recently wrote um, a really interesting story about how President Obama, former President Barack Obama is um, appearing um, as a more central figure in this election cycle than we might might have thought. Why'd you write that?
4: Yeah, so it's really fascinating. You know, Obama hasn't appeared on the ballot since 2012, and yet we are uh, seeing him show up as a central figure in both presidential campaigns—the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign. For the Biden campaign, you know, they are eager for President Obama to get out there as Biden's, you know, political wingman. They know that that. Obama is the most popular Democrat in the country still. Uh, He plans to play a really active role in this general election. How exactly that shakes out is still being determined uh, because so many of the campaign's plans have been upended by the pandemic and the fact that they're not holding in-person events around the country. But Obama is going to be a really central figure and a central advocate for Joe Biden over the next couple of months. On the flip side, you have the Trump campaign very eager to use Obama as a foil. Uh, Very eager to talk uh, just as much about Obama, his policies, and also uh, talking about the origins of the Russia investigation that started under his watch in 2016. They want to talk just as much about Obama as they want to talk about Joe Biden, because as much as Obama is extremely popular with Democrats, he remains pretty reviled by portions of Trump's base. And that is what Trump is trying to do, rally that base, uh, get them motivated, even in the middle of this pandemic, sort of throw red meat to them. And he knows that Obama is is a real way to do that. So, you know, as someone who covered you know the eight years of Obama, it is really uh, kind of fascinating to watch us go. Back to those days now, uh, even after he's been out of office for more than more than three years,
1: isn't that fascinating? And there's just there's so much going on. I'm just gonna have to end today's week in review. We didn't get to Senator Richard Burr or Michael Flynn or uh, I mean, the, these are stories that would have taken up an hour in normal time. So, well, thank you to the three of you, really, for, for holding my hand through this week's news. Stephen Henderson, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and host of Detroit Today on WDET. Stephen, thank you so much as always.
2: Thanks for having me, Magna.
1: And Julie Pace, Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press and host of Ground Game, the AP's political podcast. Julie, it was great to have you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of Kaiser's What the Health podcast. Julie Rovner, thank you so very much.
3: Always a pleasure.
1: I'm Meghna Chakrabarti.
3: This is On Point.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes.
4: Can Profit Motive save the planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance. Sounds like a
2: wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down.
4: It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets.
2: As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive, because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at
4: profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the
3: solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone, forgetting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots.
0: Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.